The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you for our friends. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we get to come together and enjoy you together, Lord. God, as we turn to your word this morning, pray that you would teach us that you would lead us, that you would convict us, and that you would free us to follow you as our ultimate king. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Less than two weeks ago, we celebrated a national holiday called President's Day. It's actually known by the federal government as Washington's birthday, but now they call it President's Day because they kind of honor Abraham Lincoln in it as well. But we celebrate this weekend by having a three-day rest and great furniture deals. (laughs) But it is a big deal. I mean, part of it is you wonder what had to happen for this person to get their own holiday. They were obviously a very important person. Many of you are familiar with who George Washington is, I hope, I think. You probably even know what he looks like. He's on our money. He's Uh, often on the walls in our schools. You can see his picture almost anywhere you go. He's a very prominent figure in our history. And so you may know that he was the first president, but there are certain things you may not know about George Washington, certain things about his rise to prominence that are very, very interesting. For example, did you know that Washington was the first and only president to receive 100% of the electoral vote It happened twice, and yet he did not run for president. He did not even want to become president. In fact, after he was elected president, he tried to dodge it. He even tried to reject it, but finally he submitted to the vote of the Congress. Did you know that he had to borrow his own money to go to his own inauguration, and his wife didn't even go with him? She stayed at home. Did you know that during his first term, the White House was built in what is called Washington, D.C., named after him, but he never served in Washington, D.C. He served in New York and Philadelphia. Did you know that Washington was so strong that he could crack a walnut shell between his thumb and his forefinger? And I think maybe the coolest thing about Washington that I learned is that he was the only president to ever lead the military into battle. George Washington is someone that we are all familiar with because he was our first president, because he was a momentous figure in the history of our country, and therefore a momentous figure in the history of our own lives. He is a pivotal person. He was instrumental in the foundation of our country and the transition from English rule to a presidential democratic rule. Today, we are going to learn about Israel's first king. We're going to learn about their George Washington. Before I get into it, I can hardly overemphasize how historical the chapter is that we are going to be reading today. In seminary, we were given a helpful acronym to help us lay out the outline in the eras of the Old Testament. If you're like me, sometimes the Old Testament is very confusing. It's not always chronological. And so we were given this acronym to help us understand where things fit and what eras of the Old Testament. It's in your bulletin. It's also up here on the screen. I'll just walk through it quickly with you. Ta-da! Is it there, Polly? There we go. 
So this is called casket, and it's worth its weight in gold if you're people like me who get confused. But this is kind of how the Old Testament goes. First, there is creation, Genesis 1 through 11, in the beginning. Then there's Abraham, Genesis 12 through 50. And then you have Sinai to settlement, when the people come up out of Egypt and into the promised land. And then it goes from settlement, where the people are ruled by judges, into kings. And that's where we are today. This is a major transition in the life of the people of God as they go from judges to kings. And that's listed in Samuel through 1 Chronicles. Then there's exile. And so the kings rule the people for a time, but then they continually commit treason against God and they wander away from God and they abandon God. And so God judges them by sending them into exile. The northern kingdom, which is called Israel, is exiled in 722 by the Assyrian Empire. And then the southern Israel, which is called Judah, is exiled in 586. And so they're exiled, but then God brings them back and they create a new temple, a second temple. They also create walls around the city and they reestablish themselves in Jerusalem and in the promised land. And so that's kind of the outline. But what you see is that today we are at a pivotal point in which we are transitioning from the people of God being ruled by judges to the people of God being ruled by a king. And today we get to read about that first human king. They're George Washington, and his name is Saul, the Benjamite. If you would, please open up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. It's page 230 in the Red Bible and page 306 in the Children's Bible. Today, as we look at a portrait of Saul, we're going to study Saul's identity, Saul's journey as he raises up to prominence, and Saul's destiny But as we examine these things about Saul, my hope is that it's not just this outward external study of another person, but it's also an opportunity to study ourselves, to examine ourselves, to ask the important questions like, who am I? What is the purpose of my life? Where am I headed? These are questions that I hope all of us ask. And these are the questions that are being addressed today in Saul's life. And hopefully we'll get a little clarity in our own life. And so first, let's look at Saul's identity. Before we dig in, let me remind you of where we were last week. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the elders of Israel come to Samuel, the prophet, and they tell Samuel, we want a king like the nations. The the Lord is offended by the request, saying that the people of God have rejected the Lord from being king over them. And so the Lord instructs the prophet Samuel who has never been wrong in his prophecies, to go and to warn the people that if they put a human king over them, that he will only bring slavery and destruction. And the people respond by saying, we don't care. We want a king like the nations to lead us into battle. And so the chapter ends with the Lord telling Samuel, go and do what they said. Go and give them what they want. Obey their voice and make them a king. And then there is this major transition from 1 Samuel chapter 8 to 1 Samuel chapter 9. It's that part of the movie where it fades to black and then it opens back up in a country setting. And so it opens up and we are introduced to Israel's first king. And that's where we start in verse 1, 1 Samuel 9, 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. 
from his shoulders upwards. He was taller than any of the people. Let's stop there. There are several important things that we see about Saul, Israel's first king in this passage. Five things in particular. First, we see that Saul was a Benjamite. This means that he was from among the tribes of Israel, probably from the smallest tribe. You see, the Benjamites were kind of a wicked people. And there was a civil war in which they fought against each other and killed one another. And so through attrition, many of them had died off. And so it was a small clan. The second thing we see is Saul came a family of great stature. The reason why it lists out the lineage of Saul is because his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather must have been well-known in the culture. And so he came from a famous family. Saul also came from a rich family. It tells us that Saul's father was a man of wealth. Later, we see that he owned donkeys and he had servants. He was a man who owned his own business. Fourth thing we see is Saul was the most handsomest man in all of Israel. He would have been Israel's GQ, man of the year. He was handsome. He was good looking. And finally, we see that Saul was tall. That rhymes. I didn't get that before. But Saul was tall, which means that he was an ominous figure. He would have been a figure that would have been great to look to in battle as a leader, as a general on the battlefield. And so to summarize, what we see in this passage is that Saul was not only tall, dark, and handsome, but he was also influential and he was rich. You see, what we see in this passage is that God is giving Israel what they wanted. God is giving Israel a king like the nation, one who has the outward appearance and stature of the king, one who is captivating to the people, who, one who is physically impressive, one that people would admire and want to follow. But the most interesting thing about the description of Saul is what it doesn't include. You see, this first few verses of 1 Samuel chapter 9 is describing the most distinguishing features about Saul. And what it is missing are any internal attributes. There is no description of Saul's character. It doesn't tell us if Saul was a noble man or a good man or a godly man. It doesn't tell us if he's a good leader. All it tells us is that Saul looked like a king and that he had the reputation of his family that made him eligible to be a king. See, Saul possessed the external attributes Israel wanted in a king, but not the internal attributes that God wanted in a king. Not only was Saul a Benjamite, the least spiritual and most sin-stained clan in Israel, but later on we see that he had no idea who Samuel was. Now Samuel, we read, went throughout all of Israel prophesying and teaching God's word. And it says that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. But Samuel has no idea who he is, which means that he has no idea about the word of God. You know, for us, it would be like someone here saying, I've never heard of Billy Graham. I have no idea who he is. This is where Saul was at. All Israel knew of Samuel the prophet, but Saul didn't. The word of God was not a part of his life. You know, if we peek into the future even further, we will see that the Lord rejects Saul because of his wickedness, because he has rejected the Lord as the ultimate king. 
And then he instructs Samuel to go and anoint another king. And when he goes to anoint another king, the Lord says, do not look on Saul, Saul's appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, there's a slogan in advertising that simply says, sex sells. And the reason why it's a slogan is because there is so much truth to it. You know, if you want to sell a bag of carrots, have an attractive person eating a bag of carrots, right? If you want to sell a bag of carrots, don't just have an attractive person, have an attractive person that is also successful eating a bag of carrots. And if you really want to sell it, have an attractive person who's successful and also famous eating a bag of carrots. This is why celebrities get millions of dollars to endorse products. Our whole marketing scheme is built on the foundation that outward appearance is the most important thing to the people of America. You know, you can just walk through any line at a supermarket and you see the magazines. And the only ugly people on the magazine are those that they're trying to humiliate because they had too much Botox. Other than that, it's beautiful people trying to sell their magazines. An article was written in the Boston Globe by a correspondent named Ruth Graham. And she says, it's not your imagination. Life is good for beautiful people. A drumbeat of research over the past decade has found that attractive people earn more than their average looking peers, are more likely to be given loans by banks, and are less likely to be convicted by a jury. Voters prefer better looking candidates. Students prefer better looking professors while teachers prefer better-looking students. Mothers, those icons of blind love, have been shown to favor their more attractive children. Perhaps even more discouragingly, we tend to assume that beautiful people are actually better people. Study after study has shown that we judge attractive people to be healthier, friendlier, more intelligent, and more competent than the rest of us. And we use even the smallest differences in attractiveness to make these judgments. You know, I think this is something we don't consider often, but all of us, I'm pretty sure, are fairly superficial. All of us treat people that are of great value in society, maybe sharply dressed or attractive. We, we smile at them more commonly than we would other people. We treat them differently. But what we read here is that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, there are so many applications to this principle. It's hard to know where to start. But if you're here today and you are, you're single and you're looking for a spouse, you're looking for someone to date, it is so easy to see their external beauty. But what God calls you to do is look at their inward beauty. Look at the character of the person? Are they trustworthy? Are they dependable? And when they aren't, are they repentant? Do they love Jesus more than they love you? Look past the external beauty. Look into the internal beauty. If you're selecting a, work, a leader at work or in government or in the church, you're called to look at their character qualifications. When we look into the Old, New Testament, we see the qualifications for elder and deacon. Not a single one of them have to do with attractiveness or financial wealth or family heritage. They all have to do with competency and with character. We must pray that God would give us his eyes when we look at people 
to lead us and to partner with us because the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. You know, another way to apply this is to flip it around and apply it to ourselves. Which man, which woman are you most seeking to cultivate in your own life? Is your energy primarily spent shaping the outward man? A smaller waist? A bigger financial portfolio? Greater talent? Or is your energy primarily spent on shaping the inward man, the inward woman, hating sin, loving God, caring for the poor? My daughter, Carissa, is six years old. She's almost seven, and she loves to play dress-up. And for her, it's a great opportunity just to express her creativity. And a few weeks ago, as she was putting on makeup, we had a great discussion. I asked her, what makes a girl beautiful? And we finally concluded that what makes a girl beautiful is not the amount of makeup she has on her face, but the love for Jesus in her heart. You know, this is where I want my daughter to focus her energy, even while the whole world is telling her something different. That beauty is cultivated in a relationship with Jesus. We must pray that God would give us his eyes to look at people how he looks at people, to look at their hearts and not just their external beauty. And so we see Saul's identity, tall, dark, and handsome, but spiritually bankrupt. Secondly, we see Saul's journey. Saul's rise to fame and journey towards kingship starts with an inconvenient journey. Look at verse 3 with me. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Now I know that for us, donkeys are not something that we're overly impressed with. But at the time, donkeys were extremely important. They were important for agriculture. They were also important for transportation. Kings would ride on donkeys to get to places. And so here we see Saul's family basically is losing their livelihood. For us, it would be like a dairy farmer losing all their cows. It's all gone and they're panicked. And so he sends out Saul and the servant to go and look for them. Verse five, when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, we can, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul, saying, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to, go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to the servant, well said, come, let us go. 
So they went to the city where the man of God was. Verse 11. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. Saul and his servant set out looking for donkeys. And my guess is that as they were looking for donkeys and they wandered about aimlessly, they thought all of this is just a collection of random, arbitrary, unplanned events. But then we get to verse 14 through 16. And what we see in verse 14 through 16 is the events which seem arbitrary and random to Saul and to his servant are actually the providential plan of God. Let's look, verse 14 through 16. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, saying, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. You may remember that song from several years ago, maybe the 90s, Who Let the Dogs Out? Do you remember that song? Well, my, my youngest son, Cooper, has somehow caught wind of that song, and he goes throughout my house saying, Who Let the Dogs Out? In this passage, we get to ask the question, Who Let the Donkeys Out? And what's the answer? God did. God let the donkeys out. Just at the right time to orchestrate this divine appointment with Samuel. But it goes far further than that. You see, God put in Kish's heart to send out his son and servant to go look for them. God guided the wandering footsteps of Saul and his servant. Prior to the trip, God had exposed Saul's servant to the knowledge of this man named Samuel, who was a prophet. God orchestrated a sacrifice in the city on that certain day to bring Samuel back from preaching, back to the city that he could meet with Saul. God led the woman down the mountain at the precise time to tell Saul, hurry, go and meet him before he goes up to the high place. And all of this began because God let the donkeys out. You see, God, by his most holy, wise, and powerful will, was orchestrating and sustaining every animal, every person, every seemingly random thought, and every footstep so that Saul and Samuel would meet at this time, on this day, at this hour, in this place. We call this God's providence. The Heidelberg Catechism talks about God's providence in very beautiful and wonderful ways. The question is, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is, God's providence, it's his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them 
that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. You know, I've used this illustration before and I couldn't think of a better one. But in the 80s, there was this movie called Karate Kid. And with Karate Kid, there was this this boy named Daniel. And Daniel wanted to learn karate. And so he goes to Mr. Miyagi, this karate master, and he says, will you teach me karate? And he says, yes, come back in the morning. So Daniel's son comes back in the morning and he says, paint my fence. Not like this, but like this, right? Do you remember this? And he's a little bit frustrated. And he said, all right, I'm done. When do we start on karate? He says, come back tomorrow and, and, and we'll start on karate. So he comes back in the morning and says, wax my cars. Not like this, but like this, right? Do you remember that? Wax my cars like this. And so finally, Daniel gets so frustrated, so angry that he says, I thought you were going to teach me karate. What are we doing with all of these side projects? You just had me being your slave. What's going on? And so Mr. Miyagi throws a punch and he waxes on and he goes like this and he blocks all the punches. And sure enough, he had learned karate. But he had no idea that's what was going on. He had no idea that the karate master had a greater plan for everything that he was doing. You see, for Saul, the trip throughout Israel probably seemed like a pain in the side. The donkeys have been lost. It probably seemed random and useless, a waste of a day, a waste of a week. But in reality, God was orchestrating all these things in order to lead Saul to Samuel, to this divine appointment. You see, God's providence isn't just for Saul. And God's providence isn't just for Samuel. God's providence is for all of us. God is orchestrating all things in your life for his glory and for the good of those who love them. And yet at the same time, mysteriously, God does not violate our will. We are still responsible for what we do. You know, to think of this is mind-blowing. That there is, I don't know, two, three hundred people in this room, and God is orchestrating every detail of our life, but not just of our lives, of everyone of the entire world, and not just all the people, but all the animals and all the rain and everything. God is orchestrating all those things by his divine providence to bring about his glory and his plan of redemption. And so I, I just like to pause when I hear these things. I like to ask the question, what if it's true? What if it's really true that there are no accidents in life? What if it's true that everything in your life has a purpose? See, God is not the author of evil, but what if God is sovereign over all of your adversity? What if God is sovereign over all of your prosperity? The Heidelberg Catechism goes on and asks the question, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? And the answer is that we can be patient in adversity. We know that God has a good plan that he is working out, and we can be patient in adversity. We can be thankful in prosperity, knowing that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father. No creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, 
they cannot so much as move. This should give rest for our souls, regardless of the circumstances in our life. You see, it is hard to remember that God is in control. I think it's even harder to remember in the small details of life. You know, many times when our house burns down or we lose a job or something really horrific happens, we always try to remember God is in control. But God is in control even of the donkeys. He's in control of the little things in life. This means that that when I'm driving down the road late for church and the person in front of me is going 10 miles below the speed limit, this is part of God's providence. As much as I don't want to believe that, God is using this for his purpose. Maybe to protect me from an accident, maybe to to build in me patience, maybe to help me lean upon him and depend upon him, maybe to reveal idols in my heart. But this is part of God's providence. Every detail, every small detail is a part of God's heavenly plan. When I was at New Hope, Pastor Jim used to always say, coincidences are coincidences are God working incognito. Where in your life do you need to trust that God let the donkeys out? Where in your life do you need to trust that this is not just random chaos, but it is part of a bigger plan, that God is in charge of every detail of every second of your life? You see, Saul's journey was a journey of providence. Our journey is a journey of providence and our calling is to trust him with his plan, to believe it, to rest in it, and to rejoice in it. And so we see Saul here. We see his identity, tall, dark, and handsome, but spiritually bankrupt. We see his journey, a journey of divine providence in which God is orchestrating all things for his purposes. And finally, we see Saul's destiny. There's a lot in these verses, verse 16 through 27, and so it's going to be kind of choppy, but I want to walk through and show you all the things that God is telling us is going to be the destiny of Saul. Verse 16, he says this, the Lord says to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And so just in those first few verses, we learn a little bit about the destiny of Saul. We learn that he's to be anointed, to be prince, to become king of Israel. But we also see that God, because he loves his children, loves his rebellious children, is going through Saul to defeat their enemy, the Philistines, and to save them from their enemies. It goes on, verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, that's hard to say. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Let's pause there again. Now, that word in the ESV, restrained, is translated different ways in different Bibles. I think the ESV is actually the only one that translates it restrained. Yours might translate it as reign or govern. But it's a very interesting word choice here. It's the word in Hebrew, sir. And it is very rarely used to indicate this type of thing. And it's very deliberate and very intentional and actually very cleverly used here. The New American Commentator uh, speaks of the significance of it. It says this, God's word to Samuel regarding Saul in verse 17 are filled with irony. The Hebrew word, sir, translated here as govern can equally 
equally well mean restrain, hold back, hinder, or even imprison. The core meaning is to restrain or constrict. In the majority of its 46 occurrences in the Hebrew text, the word possesses a negative connotation, suggesting imprisonment, silence, or holding back. In fact, 917 right here is the only location in Scripture where the word can be taken to mean rule. And so what is being communicated by the language here is that one of the, one of the destinies of Saul is to rule in such a way that it actually restricts the people of God from their relationship with God. It actually enslaves them, similar to what we saw before, that Saul's destiny is to be part of God's judgment against their rebellion against God as their ultimate king. It continues, verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite? from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? In the first part of verse 20, Samuel proves himself to be a prophet. He recognizes that the reason that Saul had come was because he lost his donkeys. To our knowledge, Saul had never mentioned the donkeys. Not only that, he says when it happened three days ago, not only that, he says the donkeys have been found. And so because he has this credibility of a prophet now with Saul, the next words are startling to him. These are words that are confusing to us. It says, and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? These words are confusing to us, but we see they were very clear to Saul because he took them as words of flattery. And he responds, who am I? I'm just a Benjamite. How could you say these things to me? And so what Samuel is saying here is, Saul, you are the desire of Israel. Everybody wants you. And the implication is they want you to be their king. They want a man just like you to lead them. He was tall, dark, handsome, and they wanted him to be king. And he says, why are you even troubling yourself with these donkeys? You're going to possess almost all of Israel. It goes on. Verse 22, then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. You see, what's starting to happen here is that Samuel is starting to treat Saul like a king. He invites Saul and his servants to come to this exclusive dinner. He gives Saul the head of the table. He gives Saul the choicest 
portion of the sacrifice, a portion that was reserved for the priests, indicating that Saul's kingship is also a divine calling. And so he's communicating the sacredness of the kingship and he's treating them as as the king to be. Verse 25. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul rose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. This is the cliffhanger. (laughs) Next week, you get to hear their conversation. But what we see in this passage is that Samuel is showing fatherly care to Saul. And what is happening is he's providing him with the best places to eat. He's walking him out of the city. He's journeying with him. He pulls him aside to have a father-son conversation. All of this is because Samuel is adopting Saul, just as Eli had adopted him. What Samuel is doing here is so important because he is fostering the relationship between the spiritual leader of Israel and the king of Israel. You see, the political kings of Israel were never to have absolute authority because we know absolute authority corrupts absolutely, right? They were supposed to have an intimate fatherly relationship with the spiritual leader of Israel. For David, he had it with Nathan, the prophet. And this was to keep them in check. And so he is developing this relationship. And so here in this passage, we see Saul's destiny that Saul is going to be king, that Saul would defeat the Philistines, that Saul would restrain God's people, that Saul would have the affections of Israel, and that Saul would be adopted by the prophet Samuel. This is Saul's destiny. But what is your destiny? You know, none of us know what the next five years hold what the next 20 years hold. I don't think any of you have had a prophet come and tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. But we need not be anxious because although we don't know what the future holds, we do know the one who holds the future. Yesterday, I was at a family reunion and we were driving a four-wheeler around and my little kids wanted to ride on the four-wheeler. And so I'd put them up on my lap and they'd sit down and they'd kind of have their hands on the steering wheel a little bit, but I had firm control of it. And we drove around and we went over some unexpected bumps and I took some unexpected turns and they're smiling and they're laughing and they're giggling. And the reason they can do that is because they're riding with their daddy. You see, if they're riding with a stranger, they would be struck with fear in panic, but they're riding with their daddy who they know loves him, loves them, and they know that he is a a competent driver. They know that he's not going to abandon them in the woods and head for home, but that he will bring them safely back. You know, in your life, you will hit bumps in the road. You will meet unexpected turns, but if you are here and you are a child of God, 
you know that you need not be anxious because although you don't know what the future holds, you know who is holding the future. You know your heavenly father. You know that he is good and that he is loving and that he is competent and that he will never fail you and that he will always lead you home. You see, many years later, would come another king in Israel, the final king of Israel, a king who did not chase donkeys, but came in riding on a donkey. His identity was he was the son of God, the king of kings, the anointed one, the Messiah. His journey was filled with suffering and pain as he was mocked and ridiculed and hung on a cross for our sins. His destiny was to go to heaven, to rule and to reign and prepare a place for his children to come and be with him. There's a, there's a gravestone in a British cemetery that says, pause my friends as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you will be. Prepare my friend to follow me. And the visitor added a sign next to it saying, to follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. Friends, you cannot know what tomorrow holds, but the amazing thing is you can know what eternity holds. Isn't that crazy? You don't know what the next hour holds, but you can know what forever holds. God wants us to be sure in our salvation. See, there is no mistake that you're here today. If God is providential over all things, the reason you're here today is because God has brought you here. He has orchestrated all things to hear this call, to come and trust in Jesus. You do not know what what tomorrow holds, but you can know what the future holds. Your destiny can be heaven with Jesus for all eternity, and we can trust him as our savior to be with him forever with this great assurance and ultimate destiny where we will have glorious bliss and no more pain. Let me end with this. This past week, I've been doing a lot of movie illustrations lately. I don't know why. I think I've run out of personal life illustrations about three years ago, so I have to steal other ones. This past week, we went to go see Kung Fu Panda 3, and uh, a great movie. And, um, and one, of the, one of the big themes of the movie was that the, the bear, Poe, needed to answer this single question, who am I? And he found out that Master Igwe actually took 20 years in a cave by himself to figure out, who am I? Well, by the end of the movie, it turns out Poe was, was a panda. <laughs> and he was a dragon warrior. You know, as we look at Saul, the first king of Israel, and we understand who he is, we are, we are faced with the question, who am I? And so the question is, who are you? If you trust in Christ, Scripture tells us that we are the people of God, that you are a child of God, that your journey is one of service and enjoyment of God, and that your destiny is to be with Jesus forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ, our ultimate king, a king that will not fail us, a king that will not let us down but a king that has already secured our salvation upon the cross. And although we don't know what tomorrow holds, God, we know that eternity 
holds paradise with you for all eternity. And because we know that future, we rest in you today and we praise you today because you are a good God and a good Father who delights to pour out his grace upon us, your children. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.